And thank you, kids. That was fantastic. So thank you very, very much for that. Um, just wonderful way to get us started this morning. And Elizabeth, where are you? Is she still in here? She's not. Well, you parents tell her, some people want more cowbell. I want more fiddle, more violin. Like, that was great. That was fantastic. She did a great job. And then Nathan, is he in here? All right, well, let's get the message back to Nathan as well. And if we had just given him a blanket, and then at the end, if he had just said, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, it would have just been, like, perfect. It would have been perfect, but he nailed it. He did a great, great job. And, and he really just set me up perfectly this morning because that, that whole idea, you know, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That, that's what I want to talk with you about, what Christmas is all about, and I want to do so in a way that really connects to where we've been in our series through Second Samuel. Because over the last several weeks, just, I mean, for those of you who've been here, being honest, it's been kind of heavy and hard. We've walked through David and Bathsheba, and we talked about dating, and then last week, everything with Amnon and Tamar and Absalom, and so we've walked through some pretty weighty, heavy topics and waters as we've been through that. And then before those kind of weighty topics, we were in some just very theologically rich passages. So last week was chapter 13 and 14. You get back chapter 7, 2 Samuel. That's all about the Davidic covenant and the king who's to come and sit on an eternal throne of David. And so all of those things that we've been in, that, that is what Christmas is all about. That's not some separate thing. And then let's talk about Christmas. All of that is what Christmas is all about. And so this morning, I want to just kind of help tie those strings together a little more strongly for us of everything that we've been in. And to do that, I want us to go to Matthew chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, make your way to Matthew chapter 1. If you're not that familiar with the Bible, the Bible is divided into two halves. There's the Old Testament and there's the New Testament. And the Old Testament, oversimplifying here, but you can kind of think of that as promise. And the New Testament, oversimplifying, you can kind of think of that as fulfillment. But Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. And so if you're trying to find that, it's going to be, if you're looking in the Bibles that are around you, the black hardback, hardback ones, it'll be on page 807. Page 807. And when you get there, you're going to find out that this is a genealogy. And so many of you are thinking, seriously, Joe, genealogy for Christmas sermon? Couldn't you have done a little bit better than that? One, probably. But two... <laughs> Two, this is the Word of God, and it's all profitable. Uh, and in this, there is something I think that we miss because we so often come to genealogies like, I don't need that, I'll just skip to the end. There's, there's a couple of things in here that I want us to see that really tie those strings together from 2 Samuel 7 and all that we've been in. Specifically, it really hammers home who Jesus is and what he came to do. It's going to show us that Jesus is, and if you want to take notes, this is going to be number one. Jesus is the long-awaited, promised, forever king. That's who he is. This text is going to show us, just as 2 Samuel 7 has showed us this. And it's also going to show us that he came to save sinners, just as all the Bible is showing us, and specifically what we've been in. And so let's just kind of jump into it and look at it, and we'll make our way through. So verse 1, actually we're just going to start with verse 1 alone and then we'll talk a little bit. But look at verse 1 with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, 
the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so just right off the bat, Matthew, the author here, is just very interesting, interested in making sure we understand just exactly who Jesus is. And so he starts with these two giant names from the Old Testament. Two names that both prefigure and point to Jesus. Not just his ancestors, but in who he is. Just showing us that Jesus is this long-awaited, promised, forever king from the Old Testament. Who would come to rescue us from our sin and heal our broken world. Because our, our, our world, it's a world where sin and death and disease and injustice and racism and uh, greed and warfare and poverty and starvation and famine and human trafficking and on and on we could go where these things reign. And they don't just reign in the sense that we can like see them out there, which we can. Look at the news, we can. But they also reign in the sense that they are in us. Because we, every single one of us on the planet, is broken by sin. Broken by the sin that we've committed against God and therefore separates us from Him and His love. We're broken by the sin that others have done to us. We're broken by the sin, just the collateral damage and fallout of living in a sinful world. And so God, looking at this bleak situation, which we caused, Adam and Eve started it, but we furthered it. God, looking at this in love and mercy, decided to fix it. Decided to come after us. And he promised this as far back, as early in the Bible as Genesis chapter 3. He promised to send a Savior to come rescue us. To redeem the world back to himself. To heal our brokenness and atone for our sins. And so Genesis 3, from that very first promise. Euangelion, like the proto even, It's the first promise of the gospel. Genesis 3, from that very moment, it just rolls out through Scripture. And so you come on down, you get to Genesis 3, and you get to a man named Abram, who at the time was just a pagan Iraqi. And God shows up to this man and says, hey, you're going to be mine now, and I'm going to make you new, and your name's going to be Abraham, and I'm going to raise up a family through you. And through that family, I'm going to bring my Messiah. He will be one of your descendants, and I'm going to heal the brokenness that is in this world, and he's going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so you just keep rolling it out from from Abraham to, to Isaac to Jacob to Judah, down thousands of years later to David. And so the Old Testament is just full of all of these promises, all of these prophecies, all of these foreshadowings, over 300 of them, all of which are pointing to the one who would come and make right all that's gone wrong, pointing to the one who would come and fulfill the law, because none of us have. Pointing to the promised one, the seed promised to Abraham, the one who will be that Genesis 3 blessing to all the families of the earth, who would come and give his life as a ransom for many. The one who's the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 that we've talked about, that descendant of David who will reign on an eternal throne. And so that's what the Old Testament is all about. It's this promise. 
It's this waiting for and this longing for the Messiah to appear, the Christ, which is the Greek way of saying the word Messiah. That's the Hebrew way. The Christ, the King, the Son of God, the Savior, just waiting and longing for Him. And then you come to the New Testament. And on a holy night, just outside the little town of Bethlehem, He's born. And the angels proclaim, He's here. The one that you've been waiting for. Genesis 12, uh, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, Micah 5. The one you've been waiting for, He's here. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Old Testament promises made, New Testament promises kept. But understand, the whole message of Christmas doesn't end with the baby in the manger. His birth, all right, the miracle of the incarnation, God the Son becoming flesh, it was monumental. It was not the end. It's all part of God's plan that He had been rolling out to redeem the world back to Himself. And so Jesus grows up. He teaches people both by word and example what the kingdom is like and how they can enter into it. He sends his followers out to spread that message from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, including us. And at the age of 33, he's falsely accused and he's crucified as an atoning sacrifice, as the Old Testament said, where he atones for the sins of the world so that those who by faith repent and believe might be justified and considered blameless before God. Not because of our actions, because all we do is sin, but because of His actions, His perfect life, His substitutionary death, His bodily resurrection. And so friends, this is who Jesus is. He's the Savior. He's the King. He's the long-awaited, promised Messiah, prophesied rescuer, forever King, descended from Abraham, descended from David. That's who He is. He's the long-awaited one, promised as far back as Genesis 3. And so that's the first thing we see from His genealogy in these two big names, who He is, the long-awaited, promised, forever King. The second thing we see is what he came to do, and that's this. Number two, Jesus came to save sinners. And so look at the rest of this passage with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, that's the twelve tribes of Israel, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Ovid, by Ruth, and Ovid, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. 
And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon." And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And so the, the author here does not hit every generation. He hits the highlights. But among the highlights, he calls out, and it should stand out to us because it's different than most of the pattern, he calls out four women, which is already weird for Jewish culture, first century, but is kind of doubly odd, perhaps, in this passage because they are all Gentiles two of whom are guilty of scandalous sin, one of whom is accused of it, and one of whom is a victim of it. And that's one of the things that, that, I, that I love about God, how He just calls this out here for us, that God doesn't identify with the goody-two-shoe Pharisees, but He identifies with the broken, with the contrite, with the humble, with sinners. And so I love that right from the get-go, Matthew is telling his readers, hey, here's who Jesus is. He's a descendant of all these people, David and Abraham, but also, don't forget, he comes from Gentile sinners like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Bathsheba. And so right from the get-go, Matthew's letting us know that Jesus didn't come to save squeaky clean Jewish people, but he came to save Men and women, boys and girls from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Sinners. And that's good news because that's us. We're sinners. And that's who Jesus came to save. He came to seek and save the lost. And that's the message of Christmas. Jesus didn't come to give us this cute, cuddly nativity story right here that we can be all nostalgic about. That's great, but that's not why he came. He didn't come to give us a moral improvement program. Do this, this, and this. Twelve steps and have a higher power and you'll be good. That might have its place, but that's not what he came to do. He didn't come to produce therapeutic, moralistic deists. He came to save sinners from their sin because he's kind. Friends, understand, it is the kindness of God that leads him to bring salvation to us, to save us. It's not our deserving of it because we just flat don't. We've rebelled against God. We've committed treason, all of us. And so we're all here on equal standing. We're all sinners. No one's better than someone else in here. We're not better than people who aren't here, but sometimes we act like it. 
Well, I may not sin. I mean, of course, I may sin, but not as bad as, as that guy over there. I mean, I'm way better than this person over here. And this guy over here, he's the worst. So I may sin a little bit, but at least I'm not like that guy. And so then we'll come and we'll come in here and we'll nod along and say, yeah, God can save anybody. But do we act like it? If you are a Christian, do you live like that? Do you live as if God can save whoever He wants? Do you live out the Christmas message that Jesus came to seek and save the lost? Even scandalous sinners that we may secretly try to keep our distance from. I'm just being honest here. I'll give you an example. What would you do? Think about yourself here. If you met a woman at the gas station or something, and she had this husband who was just total loser, dirtbag, trashy, wicked, wicked man. But he was her only means of support. And he wound up passing away. And so her father-in-law gets this idea to have the younger brother go to this girl and get her pregnant so she can get welfare and get off his support. And so the brother-in-law says, sounds good to me. And for his own pleasure, he makes attempts at this, but always purposefully makes sure that she doesn't get pregnant. And then this guy dies also. And so the woman, now desperately wanting to to get on welfare, knows she needs to have a baby to qualify her for that. And so the woman goes out and she dresses up as a prostitute and goes to a street corner where she knows her very own father-in-law is likely to drive by. And sure enough, he does, and he sinfully picks her up. And in the end, she does wind up pregnant by her father-in-law. And so you hear that story, you, you hear that background, you hear that level of baggage and sin. And often we would slap a label on this woman and though we'd never say it, we'd maybe even believe deep down God doesn't really save people like that. And friends, this text says, yes, he does. I just gave you a modified version of Tamar. Not the Tamar from last week, but the one from Genesis 38. You can go read it. It's not going to be in your precious moments Bible. It's not a family-friendly story. But it's real, and it's what Jesus does. He doesn't operate off of the labels of the world, but He comes and He gets in the muck and the mire of our sin and rescues us. Or take Rahab, another name from this list. For Tamar, what she did, that was a one-time thing. For Rahab, this is her livelihood on the street corners of Jericho. God saves her, uses her. Hebrews 11, she's in the hall of faith. He saves sinners. That's what he does. The next one we see in Jesus' line is Ruth. Probably not sinful in the way that Tamar and Rahab were, but scandalous and suspicious at the very least. It's only four chapters. Go read the little book of Ruth. 
And with her actions, I bet rumors just went nuts because even though things may have been on the up and up, just like with Mary and Joseph, it looked scandalous. But again, Jesus doesn't operate under the labels of the world. He doesn't judge rumors. He doesn't judge appearances. He judges the heart. And He comes to save anyone, scandalous or not, who will repent and believe. And then finally, verse 7, Matthew mentions Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who ultimately becomes the mother of Solomon. All right, But it started out horrible again. We looked at this three weeks ago. David's in disobedience, staying at home, not out with his men on the battlefield. And then he's bored, walking around the roof, and he sees Bathsheba bathing. And so he sends his servants to go grab her, bring her to him, Boom, sexual assault and adultery. And she's pregnant. And before her husband can get home to find out what happened, or before he finds out, he actually brings him home for a second. You all know the story, but ultimately murders him, has him killed. Has him killed. Friends, this is who God came to save. Not squeaky king, clean people, but sinners, broken, hurting, running from him, and he reaches in and pulls us out and rescues us. He came to save sinners of all sorts and all sizes. And so are you a sinner? That should be a yes. Well, Merry Christmas. Christ came to save you. That's why he came. So if you are a believer, celebrate this Christmas for that. And if you're not, give yourself, actually let God give you the greatest gift you could ever receive. Him and His salvation. That's why He came. But many of us live with this and this is true of believers and unbelievers alike. We, we live in this mindset as if our rebellion is more powerful than Christ's salvation. As if our sin's actually more powerful than His salvation. That God couldn't possibly save me. And he can forgive others, but He can't forgive me, what I've done, where I've been. This is just too deep. So we live with that wrong, let go of that nonsense. Not true. Or you think that, you know, maybe, yeah, he's powerful enough to, to, to save me, but he's not powerful enough to, to heal me and that I can now be used by God in this world. Friend, let go of that as well. Not true. Paul was a murderer. David was a sexual assaulter. Rahab was a prostitute. Tamar, Bathsheba, Moses, Abraham, me, you, sinners in need of grace. And the cross is plenty big enough to save us from our sins. There's no sin. How often have we said this lately? Too big for the cross of Christ. And so it can, the cross can handle it. And so stop trying to handle it yourself and trust Christ. Give your life to Him. It's the whole reason Jesus was born. Remember the words of the angels. For behold, we bring you good news. Literally, that means gospel. That's what that means. 
behold, we bring you the gospel of great joy. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior. And so he's come. But listen, he's coming again to finish what he started. And so understand that even as we celebrate Christmas, all right, the first advent, we're also looking forward to the second advent when Christ returns, Christmas part two almost. This time he won't come as a baby lowly and meek, but he'll come as a warrior king on a white horse with the blood of his vanquished foes on his robe and a tattoo on his thigh. And he'll come into this world with snake boots on to crush the head of the serpent, Genesis 3, forever. And sin and death will be over. Creation will be restored. Isaiah 11 that Lee read just a few minutes ago will come in its fullness. And God's been carrying this out from the very beginning. So just trace this progression with me. 6,000 years ago, he came to Abram and he said, I'm going to fix this. And he stayed true to that. Down through the line, Jesus came. He died for our sins. He rose again so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And millions upon millions, if not billions upon billions, are becoming believers, being redeemed, adopted into the family of God, transformed, lives changed for the glory of God and the good of humanity. This is rolling out all around us as we speak. And it will all wrap up someday with people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language and people group standing in front of the throne worshiping the Lamb. And friends, that's all coming because 2,000 years ago Christ came, born on Christmas Day, to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. And so this Christmas, be comforted and walk in joy because Christ has come and is coming again. The son of Abraham, the son of David has come to save sinners like you and like me. And it truly is good news of great joy and it is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. It is what it's all about. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for your goodness and your mercy in sending Christ to rescue sinners like us. And Father, we pray that we would be used, those of us who are Christians in this room, that we would be used by you to spread this message to share the gospel like the shepherds who showed up, saw the baby Jesus, and went away telling everyone that they met about the newborn king. And Father, I also pray that we would be comforted by this message. We would be, uh, this message of, of Christ coming, we would be comforted and be given and reminded and filled with joy that you love us, that there is grace that covers all our sins, 
and that your love never runs out, and there's nowhere we can go where you're not with us. Emmanuel. And that nothing stops you. Nothing stops your plan. You carry it out. Promises made are promises kept. So, oh God, fill us to overflowing this Christmas season with the good news of great joy. In Jesus' name.